Good morning, Three Rivers Church. My name is Josh Pilgrim, and I'm one of your pastors here at Three Rivers. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 5. I'm going to look at several passages of Scripture today, and while you're turning there, I want to make... Uh, to remind you and let you know about a very special day coming up in the life of our church. The last Sunday of this year, we are going to be installing Justin Owens as one of our pastors. Uh, Justin has been serving faithfully at the Kingston campus for the last year and a half. He has provided incredible leadership and he is already serving in oversight of our radical life groups along with Pastor Jim. And so he has been a blessing to this church um, ordination of pastors is never something that you ordain people to and then you expect them to serve. Ordination is always a recognition of those who are already serving and using their gifts. And he has done that well. And so we'll be doing that. I want to encourage you to be here on that day. Today we talk about vision. What is the vision of Three Rivers? As we come together again as two campuses coming back into one, it is important for us to Remember who we are and what we have been called to as a church. And so today we're, we're going to look at our vision statements found on our website. And hopefully you know it or at least know most of it by now. You could mostly quote it. But the vision statement for our church is this. For the glory of God, we will disciple the nations by being and producing radical followers of Jesus Christ. That's why we exist as a church. And so it's just good to remind ourselves as we come to the end of this year and as we come together as the church, it's important to remember this is our vision statement. This is the banner under which we live. And this is the ultimate goal for every ministry that comes out of Three Rivers Church. This vision statement contains both our vision and our mission. And those may sound like the same things, but they're slightly different. There is a difference between vision and mission. Vision is the why. It is the end in view which we're working towards. Vision is the ultimate goal. For the glory of God, we will disciple the nations. That's the vision. And the mission is the how. The mission explains how are we going to accomplish the vision that we have in mind, mission is the game plan. So the vision is for the glory of God, we will disciple the nations. It's a pretty big task. How are we going to do that? Through the mission. The mission is by being and producing radical followers of Jesus Christ. So I want to ask you just a question to think about this morning. What defines us as Christians Particularly by the world. When the world looks at evangelical Christianity. How would they characterize us? What defines us? What are we known for? There's a guy named Christian Smith. He wrote a biography of himself. An autobiography. And he converted to Catholicism. From evangelical Christianity. So in other words. He left evangelicalism. And converted to become a Roman Catholic. And he talks about. How evangelicals are known. So I'm going to read what he says. And you think about it. Is this familiar to your experience as a Christian? He said, as a good evangelical, you'll likely have CDs by musicians like Jars of Clay, Casting Crowns, Michael W. Smith, 
Jeremy Camp, Michael Card, and Third Day. If you're cool, you'll have Switchfoot, Toby Mac, or Reliant K. If you're not cool, you'll have the Gaithers. If you're old enough, you might have vinyl records of Keith Green, Randy Stonehill, Second Chapter of Acts, late 1970s Bob Dylan collecting dust in your closet. If you're younger or if you have kids of your own, you or they have watched a bunch of Veggie Tales, or you have listened to hours of Adventures in Odyssey. The homes of other evangelicals you visit for dinner have religious items on display. One near the front entry says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Amen. There's a trust in the Lord magnet that holds up coupons on the fridge. The artwork in their home may include baby footprints, butterflies, Celtic crosses, a trio of running horses, or soft lithographs of pastoral scenes or lighthouses overlooking beaches. When running errands at the local mall or shopping center, you stop in the Christian bookstore. You purposefully ignore that large section displaying figurines and all those other collectibles that you saw at your neighbor's house. You probably have a particular interest in theology, biblical studies, or ethics. So you head over to that section of the bookstore. And you wonder why those sections are so small. And why some books have even been put there in the first place. Is Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ really theology? Or John MacArthur's book, Terrorism, Jihad, and the Bible, really Christian ethics? The Bible section is huge. There's a Bible package for every evangelical demographic type imaginable. You didn't know that there was a New King James Bible version, Life Principles Daily Bible for Working Women. You notice that every man's battle has spin-off versions for every single man's battle, every young man's battle, every man's marriage, every man's challenge, preparing your son for every man's battle, every woman's battle, every single woman's battle, every young woman's battle, every woman's marriage, and every woman's challenge, preparing your daughter for every woman's battle. The young Amish woman's romance novel series, the resurrection Easter egg sets, the I can do all things tote bags and the rest really start to get to you. So you leave the bookstore and you head out and you catch lunch at a Chick-fil-A. How many of y'all can relate? Raise your hand because I'm raising my hand too, right? That's our world, right? That's what we're known for. And what we have done is we have created a Christian ghetto in which we live, we move, and we have our being. And what I want to say this morning is that we are, we are meant to be more than inhabitants of a Christian subculture that has little to no effect on the world around us. A subculture that is irrelevant to the greater world. So what defines Three Rivers Church? Is that really what we want to be known for? Our vision is not to blend in with the bland, cultural Christianity. Our vision as a church is to disciple the nations for the glory of God. The glory of God is where we begin in our vision statement. It is for the glory of God that we do all things. The glory of God is our ultimate goal as a church. And God will be greatly glorified in our lives as the nations learn to hear and follow Jesus. 
We exist ultimately for the glory of God. The chief end of man and the chief end of Three Rivers Church is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Psalm 115 verse 1 says, Not to us, O Lord, but to Your name give glory for the sake of Your steadfast love and Your faithfulness. What is the glory of God? When we say we exist for the glory of God, what does that mean? When you, when you read Isaiah chapter 6, you see angels, seraphim, singing one to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the earth is filled with His glory. glory. Isn't it interesting that it doesn't say, Holy, 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 the whole earth is filled with His holiness. It's filled with His glory. What we see even in Isaiah 6 is that the glory of God is the outward demonstration, the visible manifestation of the inward holiness of God. We display the inward value, the intrinsic worth of God. It is displayed throughout all creation. God is shouting it from the heavens. The heavens declare the glory of God. The the earth declares His handiwork. So what do we see as we talk about what our vision is and our mission? It is rooted and inspired by the glory of God. We are saved by God's glory and we are sent by God's glory for his glory. Just give you a few examples of scripture that talk about the glory of God. And you will see that it is one of the major themes from the table of contents to the index of your Bible from beginning to end. In Ephesians 1, God chooses His people for His glory. In Isaiah 43, God created us for His glory. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. Isaiah 49, God called Israel for His glory. Psalm 106, God rescued Israel from Egypt for His glory. In Exodus 14, verse 4, God defeated Pharaoh at the Red Sea to show His glory. In Ezekiel 20, verse 14, God spared Israel in the wilderness for the sake of His holy name. In 2 Samuel, chapter 7, God gives Israel victory over Canaan in the Promised Land for His glory. In John chapter 7, verse 18, Jesus sought the glory of His Father in all that He did. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus told us to do good works so that the people would see our good works and give the Father glory. In John 14, verse 13, Jesus said that He answers our prayers so that God would be glorified. Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Isaiah 43, verse 25, God forgives our sins for His own sake. For my own name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. God instructs us in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31 to do everything for His glory. Whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 11, God tells us to serve and use our spiritual gifts in a way that would glorify Him. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 9 and 10 says Jesus is coming again for the glory of of God. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14. God's plan is to fill the earth with the knowledge of His glory. And He does that by making disciples from every tribe, tongue, and nation. 
And Paul gets to Romans chapter 11, verse 36, and says everything will exist and happen for the glory of God. Oh, the depths and the wonders and the mystery and the knowledge of God. Everything we do exists for the glory of God. Maybe you've looked into outer space and asked yourself, why did God make all of those planets and galaxies where apparently no one else lives and there is only life on this planet? Why would God makes all these meaningless, vast, uninhabited galaxies and only one tiny dot of human existence. When someone asks you that question, why God would go through all the trouble to create the universe, you answer with this. This is a quote by John Piper. This universe is not intended to portray the importance of man. This universe is intended to give man some inkling of the grandeur of God. And it is an understatement. So let us not come in here casually and, 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 and worship casually and listen to the word casually. No, we have a mission from a glorious God who has included us in his plan to glorify himself among all nations. These are just a few verses in scripture which speak to the glory of God. And hopefully as I was reading those, there should be a thrill in your soul that just shouts, yes, yes. amen. We need this. God, we we should desire for God to be glorified above all things. But let's be real. It's hard, isn't it? That's easier said than done. So many Christians struggle with the question, what is God's will for my life? How can we live for God's glory if we don't know what God wants us to do? So I want to ask you a question. I ask this to college students all the time because they're in that stage of life where they're they're trying to figure out what is God's will for me? How many of you would raise your hand and say it would be so nice if God would just speak out loud and tell me exactly what he wants to do with my life? How many of you would say that would be very easy? That'd be great if he would just straighten things out for me. What if I told you that he will? Like right now, he's going to. You ready? You got to close your eyes. Can't help it. Close your eyes. God's going to speak to you out loud. I promise. He's going to speak. Ready? This is God's will for your life. God's going to speak. You ready to hear his voice? Here it is. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, three rivers, I am with you always to the end of the age. Open your eyes. He spoke out loud. You see, what I've realized in my own Christian walk, the hard part is not knowing what God wants me to do. The hard part is actually listening and obeying it. It doesn't matter what your job is or who you're married to, what your vocation is or how many kids you have or how old you are. All of those things are irrelevant to the mission. And the mission is for every one of us to make disciples of all nations. That was not a special command to a few qualified Christians. That was a divine command to all. All Christians. 
So the question this morning is not what does God want to do with my life? We already know what he wants to do. The question is, are we willing to hear and obey? Are we willing to say for the glory of God, we will disciple the nations? That's the vision. That's the mission. You see, Jesus was clear in the Great Commission I'm not going to preach even on the Great Commission. I want to point out a passage in Hebrews, but I do want to ask you three questions based on Matthew 28. The first question I want to ask you this morning is, are you willing to submit to Jesus's authority? Jesus said in Matthew 28, verse 18, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That's really important when he's going to give a command like disciple the nations. Because if Jesus doesn't have all authority in heaven and earth, I promise you that task is never going to get done. Because we're up against a great enemy. A spiritual foe that will seek to stop us. We're we're in a war. This is not theological tiddlywinks this morning. We're in a war. And you have a great enemy. And yet the good news is, we have been backed by great authority. Are we willing to submit to the authority of Jesus? When Jesus says go, are we willing to go? When Jesus says make disciples, are we willing to make disciples? When Jesus says teach them to obey everything I've commanded, are we willing to submit to the authority of Jesus today? This vision statement does not come from your pastors. It doesn't come from Mitch. It doesn't come from me. It comes from Jesus himself. So the question is not, am I going to listen to this sermon by this guy standing up here preaching? The question is, are we going to listen to Jesus today? Are we going to submit to his authority? Second question. Are you willing to obey Jesus's plan? Not just are you willing to submit to his authority. Are you willing to obey his plan? The plan Jesus gave us to disciple the nations is not by building one big mega church and inviting the nations to come in. There was a radical shift in theology from the Old Testament to the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the peoples, the nations would come to the temple To meet with God. In the New Testament, the temple is no longer a building and a place where God dwells. The temple becomes a people. And God indwells His people by the power of His Holy Spirit. And instead of telling the nations to come to the temple, He tells the the temple to go to the nations. We are the temple of God. We are His people. We represent Him to the world. And God is sending us out. And so in in Genesis chapter 11 at the Tower of Babel, you have the nations being confused in language. And God sends them out. But in Acts chapter 2, at the day of Pentecost, God brings the nations back together and they hear the gospel in their language and then they're sent out again. This is God's plan. Are you willing to obey Jesus' plan through being intentional in the relationships that you have every day to make disciples? It's not from a few superstars. Jesus does not entrust the future of the church To to superstars, he entrusted to fishermen and a, a zealot who just wanted to fight. A tax collector. That's who he entrusted the future of the church to. And he said, go make disciples. And here we stand 2000 years later and the church of Jesus still exists. And that's because it is not the disciples that were building the church. It's Jesus who's building his church and he has a plan to do it. Are you willing to submit to Jesus' authority this morning? Are you willing to obey His plan to baptize people, to call people to identify with Jesus and to teach them to obey? The third question I want to ask you, are you willing to depend on Jesus' presence? Jesus says in verse 20 there in Matthew 28, that I'll be with you always to the end of the age. 
I'll be with you always. So let's talk about this. What does this look like? I want to give you a challenge from Hebrews chapter 5. I don't want us, I don't want us just to talk in the clouds today. I want us to get a real practical about what this might look like for each of us as we seek to live out the vision by executing the mission. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. If you read Hebrews chapter 5, the first 10 verses, the writer of Hebrews is explaining to them how Jesus is our high priest. And he's talking about some pretty deep theological things about how Jesus is the ultimate priest who represents us before the Lord. And then he gets to verse 11. And he almost gets frustrated in verse 11. He says, about this, we have much to say. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. What he's telling us is not to abandon the gospel, not to abandon the basic teachings, but to move on from them and let those be the foundation and not all that we talk about. I don't make it a practice in preaching to quote from Eugene Peterson's The Message, but I find his his translation, if you want to call it that, of chapter six, where Paul, where, where the writer of Hebrews says, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. Here's what he says in the message. He says, so come on, let's leave the preschool finger painting exercises on Christ and get on with the grand work of art. Grow up in Christ. The basic foundational truths are in place. Turning your back on salvation by self-help and turning in trust toward God. Baptismal instructions, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. God helping us, we'll stay true to all of that, but there's so much more, let's get on with it. What I find in Hebrews chapter 5 is that the greatest measurement of our spiritual maturity is the extent to which we have progressed from being students to teachers. Let me say that again. One of the greatest measurements of a person's spiritual maturity is the extent to which they have moved away from only being a student to being a teacher. This does not mean that mature Christians stop learning. Or ceasing to be discipled by others. But it does mean that eventually we grow into leading and teaching others. This is why the writer of Hebrews says in verse 12. By this time you ought to be teachers. But instead you're like a child who needs milk. We're still on the basics of the faith. Something that I discovered in my own Christian life. When I was in high school, I became a Christian in the sixth grade. 
grew up in the church, was, was pretty much ignorant of the Bible. I couldn't tie two scriptures together to win anybody to Jesus. I was just very ignorant. I knew Bible stories, but I had not moved beyond those things to the depth of the gospel and, and letting Christ transform me. And I'll tell you what transformed me more than anything else was the day that I finally decided that I didn't just want to go to Sunday school and learn from a teacher, but I wanted to start speaking to my friends about the gospel and trying to teach them. And so I got some buddies of mine in high school, got the football team together early before workouts, and I said, guys, once a week, I just want to, can I, would y'all let me speak to you and teach you from the Bible? And some of the guys agreed. And the truth was, I, I wasn't very good at it. I, I wasn't very good at all. If I look back, I'd be pretty embarrassed. I'm glad that there's no record of that, right? Nobody was on Twitter getting it on smartphone and putting it on Facebook and I get reminded of it every year like, hey, look at how you were a moron 10 years ago and didn't know how to (laughs) preach the Bible. Thank goodness that didn't exist back then. But you know what happened? The more I started to read the Bible with the intention of teaching someone else and leading, the more I started to ask good questions and I said, I got to teach this to other people, but I don't even know what it means. So I got to go read some more books. I got to go study. I need to pray. I need to seek the Lord. Jesus, please help me understand what does this mean? I want to teach. I want to I want to lead. And the more I started to do that, the more I started to grow in my understanding of Scripture. And as time went on, I began to mature a little bit. I started to grow up. I started to teach more. I had more opportunities. And the reason I'm saying that is that anybody would agree that if you're really going to know something, you have to move from sitting in the student's desk to getting up in front of the, in the teacher's spot. Isn't it true that you don't really learn something until you've been forced to teach it? And so what I want to say to each of you is that the reasons I'm not pointing anybody out, this is just in general, let the Spirit speak to who He needs to, but there might be a reason that your maturity in Christ is being slow. It's because you're still coming to church as a receiver only. Nothing wrong with coming as a receiver. It's a gift of God's grace for us to teach you the Bible and for you to receive. But there has to be a time in your life where you move from just being a receiver to a giver. From a student to a teacher. From a learner to a leader. There has to be a point in your life when you move beyond that. Otherwise, you will never move beyond the elementary principles of Christ. And you'll still be drinking from a spiritual bottle because you haven't grown up. And I don't I don't say that in a mean way. I say that to encourage you. So here's what I want to encourage everyone in here to do this today. For us to grow up into maturity in Christ, I want you to ask yourself the question. Am I putting myself in a position to be both a student and a teacher? I want you to take a discipleship litmus test of your life. Take a spiritual inventory of all your relationships. Let me ask you this question. Think about every relationship you have. The people you are around the most. Your children, your family, your co-workers, your friends. Think about those relationships And ask yourself this, in those relationships, do you primarily take on the role of the student or the teacher? Are you primarily the receiver, the taker, or the giver? Are you investing in the lives of others, or are you only receiving from other mentors, but never giving? The reality of the Christian life is that we should always be doing both. Simultaneously learning and leading. By this time, by this time, you ought to be teachers. 
How long have you been a Christian and you're not really discipling anyone? This is I've told this story a hundred times, but it's worth telling again. My evangelism professor at Beeson Divinity School would always ask that question. Pilgrim, how are your men? How are your men? And if you don't have any men, then you're not being obedient to the Great Commission. I had to look at him and say, what men? What are you talking about? You're men. Those men in 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. I realized I didn't have any men. And ever since then, I've been challenged with that. And I've always tried to be intentional, even if it's just a couple of guys that I meet with once a week, it's shorter to pray with. We don't spend it's not even about Bible study. It's about we're going to learn to hear from the Lord. We're going to read the Bible. We're going to pray through Scripture and we're going to we're going to encourage one another. It can be something that simple. It does not have to be you standing in front of a large group of people and preaching a sermon. That's not discipleship. And here's a myth for some of you. The myth is that we need to wait for this magical time where we've spiritually arrived before we can disciple other people. It's one of the big lies of Western Christianity. You see, we have this model that Bob Roberts calls learn, grow, then go. That's how I was raised. You go to the church, you learn a lot of information about Jesus that you grow up and when by the time you finally become spiritually mature enough and you know enough, then you'll be in a position where you can teach others. But this is not how the early church started. Could you imagine? I want you to imagine you're one of the disciples and you've been sitting in Jesus's Bible study for three years. And Jesus says, all right, guys, it's your turn. I want you to go and disciple the nations. And you've got that model in your mind of learn, grow, go. At what point, be honest, at what point in your life would you ever feel that you knew as much as Jesus did? Right? Well, well, once I'm as mature as Jesus, once I know as much as Jesus, once I know the Bible like Jesus, once I'm as wise as Jesus, then I'll be ready to go and make disciples. Y'all, if the disciples had that mentality, the church never would have gotten off the ground. Because that's not what they did. They didn't, the model was not learn Grow, then go. The model was hear and obey. That was the model. What did Jesus say? What did Jesus do? Let's go do what Jesus did and tell people what Jesus said and live according to how Jesus taught us. That is the model. That's what they did. And so they continued to hear his voice. Jesus said, I'm not leaving you. I'm going to be with you through the presence of the spirit. I'm going to be with you. Isn't it interesting when you read the first chapter of the book of Acts, the disciples are looking around at each other and there used to be 12, but now there's 11. Judas is gone. Judas has betrayed Jesus. He betrayed the disciples. So the disciples have to find a replacement for Judas. So they cast lots. They roll the dice and the lot falls to a guy named Matthias and Matthias replaces Judas. But you know what's interesting when you read the first two chapters of Acts? They didn't cast lots to replace Jesus. They didn't take a vote and say, well, who's going to take Jesus' spot? First of all, it's impossible to replace Jesus. Second of all, and most importantly, Jesus never left them. Jesus said, I will be with you always to the end of the age. 
The disciples had a conscious understanding of His abiding presence. He was their living leader and Lord. And that's why discipleship is not about learning, growing, and going, but hearing and obeying. That is the essence of discipleship as Jesus defined it. In Matthew 28, what does He say? Go, make disciples, baptize people, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. He didn't tell us to memorize everything He said. My dad tells me to clean my room. or Not anymore, I'm married and have my own house. But when I was in, at home, son, clean your room and cut the grass. Okay. He comes home later and I didn't clean the room and cut the grass. Son, why didn't you clean the room and cut the grass? Dad, I memorized what you said. Hey dad, I memorized it in Greek and Hebrew. Two languages. And dad, we're having a small group, radical life group study tonight. We're going to talk about what it would look like if I cleaned my room and cut the grass. That's not obedience. It's disobedience. So I want to ask the men in the room, I ask you this, I'm going to ask you again. How are your men, men? Who in your life are you leading and teaching to hear and obey Jesus? Ladies, how are your women? Who are you taking in under your spiritual wing to teach them how to hear and follow Christ? Here's something you need to be free from. You'll never, ever reach the point where you have arrived spiritually. You're always going to be learning. You're always going to be growing. And the truth is, there is always going to be someone who's further along than you. But there's always also going to be someone who is not as far along as you are. And so as you're following others and you're learning and you're being discipled, you need to find other people to take along with you and say, hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to read this book, everything Jesus says in it. We're going to do it. We're going to obey. It would totally transform the spiritual life and the atmosphere of this church if we would hear and obey and be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. So discipleship now is is about teaching people to hear the voice of God through the scriptures and to respond in obedience. Isn't this what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? He closes the sermon. Three chapters of the Sermon on the Mount. And how does He close? He says, everyone who hears this sermon of mine, these words that I've spoken and does them, not hears them, not just memorizes them, whoever does these things that I've said is like a man who built his house on a rock. And the rain falls and the floods come and the wind beats on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. For some reason, I grew up always assuming that building your house on the rock was just learning what Jesus said and knowing it in your heart. But Jesus does not say that. He says it's the one who obeys is the one who has built his house on the rock. But whoever hears these words of mine that does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And when the rains fall and the floods come and the winds blow and beat against that house, it fell and great was its fall. You're building your house on spiritual sand if you're living a life in which you only learn about Jesus, but you never obey. And let me say this, there's a a danger here for us to, to lean into legalism and to think that the Christian life is just about obeying and God is pleased with me through my obedience. So I need to be explicit here. You are not a Christian because you obey Jesus. You are a Christian because you believe Jesus. 
It is by faith through grace that we're saved. And yet that grace leads to joyful obedience by faith. We never, we never grow out of faith in Christ. We never move past that. But that faith in Christ leads us to a deeper walk with Christ and a deeper obedience. God is not pleased with you this morning based on your performance for Him. God is pleased with you this morning because of Jesus' performance in your place. It's always by Jesus' obedience in our place that makes us right with God. But because we are right with Him, and because we are forgiven of sin, and because we've been declared right, that should lead us to joyful obedience and a walk by faith. And this is where our vision and our mission collide. So the vision is that for the glory of God, we would disciple the nations. And the mission explains how we're going to do that. How are we going to do that? By being and producing radical followers of Jesus Christ. I was at a business conference not too long ago in Orlando and John Maxwell was the guest speaker there. And I think some of the things that John Maxwell talks about in leadership applies to discipleship. And he and I, I've remembered these and these were just so helpful for me to think through the relationships that I have. He talked about five steps of developing leaders. And I want us to think of it in terms of making disciples. Of teaching people to hear and obey. And some of you probably already know this, but five steps. The first one, in the relationship, I do it. That's the first step. I'm going to do it. And you merely watch. You watch me do it. The second step, I'm going to do it, but you're going to be with me. So I'm taking somebody else with me. I'm saying, I'm going to do it. You're going to watch me, but you're going to be with me while I do it. The third step, you're going to do it, and I'm going to be with you. So that you're still going to have my help. You're still going to have that, that, that accountability, but I'm with you, but you're doing it. Number four, you do it. You do it without me having to be there. You do it without me having to lead you. You take responsibility. You take the initiative. And the problem is that's where a lot of people stop. There has to be this fifth step. The fifth step is you do it and go find someone else to do it with you. That's where discipleship is complete. If we only preach the gospel and someone only becomes a Christian and then we leave them, it's incomplete. It's not discipleship. So I want to ask you, think through those relationships and say, how can I bring people into my life? Some of these young men that I I try to mentor, I'm already thinking through this for myself. I'm doing it and they're watching me. And then I'm going to do it with them. But there comes a point when I have to say, I'm pushing you off the cliff and your little wings are going to have to fly and you're going to have to do it on your own, but I'm going to be with you. But I'm not going to go through this whole process if you don't have the intention of finding someone else to go do it with later. This is what Jesus did. If you think about the life of Jesus, Jesus is preaching and his disciples watch. And then Jesus lets his disciples follow him and they go with him. He says, I'm going to do it and you're going to be with me. And then he sends them out two by two. He says, you're going to do it while I'm still here. And they come back and report to him. And then he says, you go do it. And he doesn't have to be there. All right. In the Great Commission. And then finally, the expectation is always you go do it and find other people to come alongside with you and do it with them. A leader and a disciple maker who wishes to make disciples must provide their followers with opportunities to exercise and develop their strengths. 
If you are always teaching and never allowing other people to take opportunities and to to learn and to grow, then they're not going to develop and they're always going to be sucking milk. So I want you to think through the relationship you have and think about those people you can take under your wing and think about ways that you can develop them and to give them opportunities to serve. We are not to be performers. We are trainers. That's our job. And so I would encourage you this morning, don't rely on old spiritual experiences, but kindle the flame of daily devotion. Seek the Lord. Read the Scriptures. Find people to come alongside of you and encourage them. Don't ever make the excuse... No one has discipled me. That's not an excuse. You don't need some other person to come and disciple you. The truth is we are first and foremost disciples of Jesus. And he's given us his word. Nobody discipled me growing up. I had men in my life and women in my life that that nurtured me along the way. And I think we get this weird view of discipleship like it's this one-on-one thing. It's not always one-on-one. Like there's people in my life that have influenced me and they don't even know that they've influenced me. There's people that influence me now and it's not this official, I'm the student, they're the teacher. When I sit with our pastors, Mitch Jolly encourages me and we sharpen one another. It's mutual. Corey Barnes is here. He's a, the chair of the Christian Studies Department at Shorter. He was a freshman when I was a senior in college and now he's, he, we're mentoring each other. We encourage one another. And I'm thankful for that brother. The truth is, I'm standing up here alone, but it's crowded up on this stage because I don't know if y'all can see the people. I don't know if y'all can see them, but it's crowded up here. I'm not standing up here by myself. There's a great cloud of witnesses of men and women who have invested in my life. My mom and dad could stand up here while I preach because they've invested in me. Doug Darville took time with me. Mitch Jolly took time with me. Ben Hansard has taken time with me to ask me those hard questions. I've got people in my life that do that and they encourage me. But I'm not going to stop there and just be a, a, a taker. I want to, I want to give back. I want to be an influence on others like these people have been an influence on me. I, it's crowded up on this stage. You just can't see the people. None of us are standing by ourselves. None of us are where we are because we got there by ourselves. There is a community of people and books that we've read and people who have encouraged us and Sunday school teachers and those who have come alongside of us and we would not be where we are today if it were not for them. You are first and foremost a disciple of Jesus. He is the one who is growing you and teaching you. So I want to give you some practical things to think about. Opportunities for discipleship. The first one, and it's something I'm excited about, something new that we're going to be doing in January next year, is we're going to bring back the Wednesday night supper. We're going to transform TRCU uh, into something more than just a small group book study. What we're going to do is we want to encourage a night for the whole family. I'm going to be teaching a survey of the Old Testament. This is going to be a chance for you, yes, to learn But with the expectation that whatever you come to learn, the expectation will be that you are going to go teach someone else. We're going to provide food. We want people to eat together. We want to do that. I got Abraham Zavala. Man, raise your hand. This brother right here, has got. he's he's willing to serve, looking for opportunities. He's the point man on food. And the truth is he can't do it by himself. We're going to need people to help us serve and and to have food. And and I'm not talking about cooked food. We're bringing in Chick-fil-A, something easy. But we want to make it easy for people to eat together, bring your kids. My wife is is going to be discipling children. It's not just child care. She wants to teach her children how to sing. 
To teach them the theology of our songs, of what we sing in church. To take that time to be intentional. Our students are going to meet on Wednesday nights. They already meet on Wednesday nights. And Marco and Amy Crawford and Kayla are already working with them. And they're discipling our young people. So there's an opportunity, not just for us to fellowship as a church. What I see for that night on Wednesday night is for us to come to eat together, to fellowship, to learn together but to invite people who don't have a church, to invite people to come and to 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 sit with us and get to know us and, and learn as well. So I'm looking for people to help with that. I'll, come see me or Abraham after we're done. We really want to make this a, a thriving ministry of TRCU and to be something to equip you to make disciples. But there's other ways for you. Radical life groups. If you're not in one, that is one of the key ways in our church that people are discipled. Mutual encouragement from one another, where we're not only teaching one another, but we're being encouraged as well. If you're looking for opportunities to teach, to pass on what you've learned, to take some initiative, Brittany Hayes is always looking for helpers in Radical Kids, right? She's always looking for people. One of the best ways you can invest in the future is to invest in those young children. The one place you'll never be able to go and do ministry is the future. You can't go there. But if you invest in young people, if you invest in those who are younger than you, you're investing in doing ministry in the future and your ministry will carry on long after you're gone. But this is ultimately about hearing and obeying the Lord. I would encourage you to read good books. John Piper and Mark Dever have been great disciplers of me. They've never met me. They don't know me. But they disciple me through their books. Find books to read. Always be reading. And don't just read Christian books. Learn from other people in the world. Learn from them and read broadly to learn. Spend time with the people you wish to learn from and be intentional to spend time with others that you wish to influence. Something I think we need to understand about discipleship. It is not just about teaching them more information. It's not just about transfer of information. It's about transformation of the life. Most discipleship is not taught in a classroom. It's modeled by your life. Isn't that true? I mean, we learn to be parents based on how we watch our parents parent. For better or for worse, right? We learn good, we learn bad, but we learn how to... We don't learn parenting by taking a parenting class or or sitting in class and our parents saying, well, this is what I did. We just watch them. So people are going to learn how to live the Christian life and they're going to learn how to follow Jesus by watching you more than they will by listening to you. Don't be afraid to challenge other people with the scriptures today. Don't be afraid to come along someone here today and give an encouraging word or to pray for them. Something that I'm challenged to do and that my dad and I have been talking about this, that he goes to yard sales all the time, talks to people and he started to say, you know what, I'm just going to ask people if I can pray for them. And it's opened up doors for opportunity to witness. And people don't turn down prayers most of the time. And when you do pray for them and they're willing to share what's going on in their life, guess what they might ask you? Hey, where do you go to church? I go to Three Rivers Church. You should come on Wednesday night. We're going to have this awesome awesome time of fellowship and we can eat together. And come on Sunday morning and, and be a part of our church. I'd love for you to come. You can sit with me and I'll take you to lunch after church. That's how those things get started. But be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. I cannot tell you what to do. I can only tell you to hear the Lord and obey. I'll give you one more resource. This just came out, I think, this week. And I'm thrilled about this. The Gospel Coalition has just come out uh, with these an online 
seminary, essentially, is what it is. If you go to thegospelcoalition.org slash courses, they have provided tons of online courses for you to take. You can sit down with someone else. It's these 12-step videos, the series. They provide the books for you. They provide the videos. You can go 12 lessons with D.A. Carson through the book of Luke. And it's free. You don't have to sign up. You don't have to give them an email. It's just available for you. And it's got discussion questions for you to bring other people alongside and to, and to study things from theology to practical ministry to Old and New Testament or just the study of the gospel. If you want to have an evangelistic meeting with someone and get them together, go through the gospel course and let them watch these videos and what is the gospel. But those are available to you. Let me give you one more encouragement here. And I think... I think understanding the perspective, if we're going to accomplish this mission, it will be by every one of us recognizing that we are in a spiritual race. And 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2 applies to all of us. Paul tells Timothy, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Those are four generations of Christians. Paul, who taught Timothy, who taught faithful men, who would then go on to be able to teach others also. We're in a spiritual race. A race that began 2,000 years ago when a carpenter from Nazareth handed a spiritual baton to 12 ragtag disciples and said, go and make disciples of all nations and I will be with you always to the end of the age. I I just I get excited when I think about this, that those how intimidated those men must have been when Jesus is ascending into the clouds and he has handed them a spiritual baton and said, go and make disciples. And they're looking around at each other like, what are we going to do now? There's a lot of nations out there and there's only 12 of us. But you know what they did? They began to hear and obey Jesus and they preached and Pentecost came. And those men began to pass the baton to other people. And so you have John, the last disciple, who's on the Isle of Patmos. And before he dies, we told in church history, that he passed a baton off to a church father, one of the earliest church fathers, a guy named Polycarp. A guy who stood before the Roman emperor and would not deny his faith. And who took that baton and before he died, before he was fed to the lions, he passed the baton on to a woman named Perpetua, who was also uh, died for her faith and was fed to the lions and who gave a witness for Christ before she died. And the other church Fathers who then passed the baton on to a guy named Athanasius who stood at the council of Nicaea and defended the divinity and the humanity of Christ against a world of heretics. He stood and defended the divinity and nature of Jesus and the humanity of Christ. And Athanasius boldly took the baton and passed it on to the Greek fathers like John Chrysostom, the golden-tongued preacher, and St. Gregory. And these men passed it on to that bishop of Hippo, the one in Africa, St. Augustine, who stood against Pelagius, the heretic of his day. Pelagius, who denied the, the, the fall, that the fall had corrupted man. And, and Pelagius said it's the free will of man that saves, and it is man who saves himself. And Augustine defended the doctrines of grace. De Augustine stood up and said it's by grace alone that we're saved. It's by faith alone that we're saved. And Augustine faithfully defended the doctrines of grace before the heretics of his day. 
And before he died, he passed it on to a guy in the 8th century named Anselm who began to defend the atonement of Christ. That Christ's atonement took away our sin. Anselm passes the baton off into the 13th century to a guy named John Wycliffe. Long before King James comes along, John Wycliffe begins to translate the Bible into English. And he stands up against a a corrupt Catholic church. And Wycliffe died for his faith. He strangled and then burned at the stake. But before he was burned, he passed the baton off to a guy named John Huss. A man who stood up and spoke against the, the indulgences of the day of the Catholic Church before Luther ever wrote his 95 theses. John Huss stands up and says, this is not the gospel. This is not what Christ died for. And John Huss died before the Reformation could ever begin. But before that man was burned at the stake, he passed the baton off to another guy named William Tyndale, who finally was able to translate the Bible into English to get the Bible into the common language of the people so that they could have the Bible for themselves. Tyndale and those passed it on to the reformers when this German monk nails 95 theses to the castle church in Wittenberg and he begins a Protestant reformation that would forever change Western culture and would forever change the destiny of the church. And it wasn't just Luther. It was the other reformers like John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli and Thomas Cranmer and John Knox in Scotland. When the baton gets to him, he prays and he says, God, give me Scotland or I die. And Scotland experienced its greatest revival in the history of that nation. John Knox passes the baton to the Puritans. Men like Richard Baxter and Matthew Henry and that great hymn writer John Newton. And they pass the baton on to the evangelicals like John Wesley and Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, that great evangelist who would stand in front of 10,000 people in an open field and would preach the gospel. And even secularists like Benjamin Franklin would come and listen to Whitfield. They would come to Whitfield and say, I just came to watch that man burn. I just want to see his passion. I know that what Whitfield preaches, he believes. Ben Franklin said, I don't believe what Whitfield believes, but Whitfield believes what he's preaching, and I'm coming to listen to Whitfield. And they passed the baton on to that great preacher, my favorite man in church history besides Jesus, Charles Spurgeon, who in the 19th century, as a 19-year-old man, stood in front of the Metropolitan tabernacle and preached before 10,000 people at a time without a microphone and his sermons are still being printed today and yet Charles Spurgeon would not live forever. He passes the baton on to those missionaries even William Carey who preceded Spurgeon who began the modern missions movement who stood in front of the people in England and they said Carey don't you dare go to Africa don't you dare go to Asia the heathen will be converted if God intended to convert them. And Carey said, I'm going. And he began to inspire a generation of men who gave their lives and left the comforts of America to take the gospel to the nations. Men like Adoniram Judson and Hudson Taylor and David Livingston and Lottie Moon, of all people, goes to China and says, I'm going to take the gospel to the Chinese people. They pass the baton on to those pastors in the 20th century. The great evangelist D.L. Moody and Martin Lloyd-Jones who stood in Westminster Chapel 
in London and preached the gospel faithfully for 30 years. John Stott, A.W. Tozer. We could go on and on, but those men died and they passed the baton on to that evangelist. You may have heard of him. His name's Billy Graham. And he preached to more people than anyone else in human history. And yet Billy Graham will not live forever. He's on the last leg of his own race. Fifteen years ago, we watched him in New York preaching his last sermon at his last crusade, shaking with Parkinson's degrees, d- disease. And we realized the baton is getting heavier in our own hand. Billy Graham will not live forever. And I look at the men that took the baton in our own generation that we look up to. Men like John MacArthur and men like John Piper that we, we look to and we say, yes, but John Piper is on his last leg. He admits this. He's looking forward to passing his ministry on he's not going to live forever and he's passing the baton on to other people and those men have taken the baton men like Mitch Jolly who invested in me when I was in college men like Dub Darble and James Pilgrim and people who who have invested in me and they've taken the baton and here stands the baton today Three Rivers Church it is a race that has been going for 2,000 years and if you look closely at this baton it's got blood on it Because men and women have died to get it this far. Do you feel the baton getting heavier in your hand? And the only hope for this baton being passed on to to the next generation is for us being faithful to pass it on and to make disciples. To invest in the next generation. Otherwise, the race stops and the baton is dropped. Let it not be so in this church and so Three Rivers Church. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Not being entangled by the sin that so easily entangles us, but let us keep our eyes fixed and focused on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who has promised He will be with us always to the end of the age. For the glory of God, we say, Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word today. Father, Thank You for including us in Your mission. Father, there may be someone in this room who has wandered in here today who is not a Christian. And so, Father, for that person, I would pray that they would understand that You have sent Your Son, Christ, to die in their place for their sin, who has been raised from the dead and promises forgiveness of sins and eternal life to anyone who would repent of their sin and put their faith in Jesus alone. Father, would You bring people to repentance and faith today? Father, for the believers in this room, give them confidence. Remind us of our vision that for Your glory we would disciple the nations. Empower us to be radical followers of Jesus, to make disciples, to be intentional with the relationships around us. Father, would you do that for your glory? Would you allow us to pass the baton to the next generation? Father, let us set the example for our people, even today as we stand and worship and sing to you, that you would receive all glory, all power, all authority, all wisdom and honor. It is yours. We sing for your glory. We worship for your glory. We disciple for your glory. We teach for your glory. We preach for your glory. So be glorified today among your people. In Jesus' name, amen.